So grab a Bible. Um, we're turning to Amos chapter four tonight. Uh, it's one of the most surprising kind of pa passages I find in the Bible. It's got some pretty unusual language. It's pretty upfront and it's pretty frank. Um, and this businessman, Amos, who went across the border to another country selling woolly jumpers, um, was pretty frank to the people that he was speaking to. And maybe his call to them tonight, see if you can see as Simon explains, what's his call to them? And what's your response? What's my response? Uh, as across the centuries, this call miraculously comes to us tonight. So it's a great passage. Let's read it together. It's on page 919 uh, in the Red Bibles. And the first verse is um, the best. It says, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through breaches in the wall, and you will be cast out towards Harmon declares the Lord. Go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites. This is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Many times I struck your gardens and your vineyards, destroying them with blight and mildew. Locusts devoured your fig and olive trees, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. I killed your young men with the sword, along with your captured horses. I filled your nostrils with the stench of your camps, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. I overthrew some of you as I overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. You were like a burning stick snatched from the fire, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth. The Lord God Almighty is his name. Evening, everybody. Please turn to Amos 4, 919. We've got four of these left. If you haven't yet picked up one of these, um, uh, a short book that takes you, look at that, we've got three left, um, that takes us through Amos over 31 undated devotions. We've got two left. Look at that. Good catch. Good catch. Lynn? Avril wants one. One left? Oh, 
be honest, it's not in quite. I've got one upstairs. Thanks, Chris. I nicked one from Neil's office before anybody else got one. I have to be honest, that's not exactly the tone I wanted to set when I was starting, but I do apologise. If you want a book, come and see me afterwards and we'll, uh, we'll order some more in. That's fantastic. Don't know how much you've read of the prophets in uh, the Old Testament, but being an Old Testament prophet wasn't the easiest of callings. For most of them, the nature of the message meant they wouldn't have an easy life. Jeremiah wept because of what he had to do. Habakkuk just spent most of his time complaining. Jonah ran away. And Daniel described himself as overcome with anguish at the visions that he saw that the Lord had given him. See, when the Lord speaks, when the Lord confronts sin, when he challenges idolatry, it's difficult to hear. And coming to his words 3,000 years later here in Amos, it is exactly the same. It is difficult. It is challenging. It is uncomfortable. See, having a heart operated on by the double-edged sword of God's word is painful. Sometimes there is no anesthetic. And as our hearts are open, it is painful as we listen to what the Lord has to say. But it's always for the best. He is the master physician, always working for our good and his glory. And that's how it's going to be tonight as we come to Amos 4. Tonight is going to be hard. For the past three weeks, I have bounced onto the platform upstairs and preached the joy of the blessings in Christ from Ephesians chapter 1. That is not the tone for this evening. It won't be like listening to Ephesians being preached. We're going to see the holiness of God. We're going to see the dirt and the pollution of our sin. But it may shock some of us as the Lord wants to draw us to him. If only we will listen to the roar. I pray that we will listen. In fact, as we begin, let's pray together. Lord, we need you. Every hour, every minute, every second, we need you. And oh, how we need you tonight. Father, I pray that through my words, through Amos's words, we would hear you. And I pray that tonight, Lord, we would be uncomfortable. I pray that by your spirit, you would put your finger upon those areas of our lives that, that don't show that we belong to you. That don't show that we long to know you more. That don't show that we need you. Father, shake us out of our complacency. Cut away all of those things that are displeasing to you. Those things that Christ died for. And lift our eyes so we may see that glorious hope that we were thinking of this morning. That one day we will be like the Lord Jesus, for we will see him as he is. Father, I pray that you would roar tonight. I pray that you would speak loudly and clearly. And I pray that we would hear. Oh, Lord, I pray that we would hear. Amen. So it is with God himself that we're going to start. 
You see, because we naturally try and justify our sin, we need a proper view of him to jolt us out of our self-centeredness, to challenge us to be more self-aware. So often we're so focused in on ourselves that the things around us just become normal. It just becomes a normal way of life. See, one of my biggest character flaws is that I forget that not everybody thinks the way I do. I just assume that the way I think is right, that the way I live is right. And if somebody else does something differently or challenges the way that I do things, then they must be wrong. But by focusing on God, by focusing upon him, I'm lifted out of my small, puny little world. And he is able to speak into my life and to show me how I really am, to show me how the world really is, and most importantly, to show me how he really is. And so to the Lord. See, the first mention of him in this passage is there in verse two. The sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. See, as a summary of who God is, the sovereign Lord is holy goes a heck of a long way. So you've seen, haven't we, in Ephesians, how God is sovereign. He's the eternal king. He's the creator of all things, that nothing happens outside of his control. He is sovereign. He is the Lord. This is that beautiful, glorious covenant name of God, the intimate, personal revelation of himself to his people. Who is the Lord? He is in his name. It encapsulates his nature. I am who I am. I will be who I have always been. Everything that God has always been, he will always continue to be. And by giving his people his name, we see that this sovereign creator, this king who is overall, longs to be in relationship with the people that he has made. He is a loving, covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And he is holy. The sovereign Lord is holy. To be holy means to be separate, to be different. See, holiness defines who God is as distinct from everyone and everything else in all of creation. He is other. He is unlike anything or anyone else. He is holy. Holiness is what makes God, God. But it's not just that holiness describes who God is, but also that his holiness is the perfection of holiness. So he is distinctively holy in his utter moral perfection. He is different from humanity and he's different from all other claimants to be God. Everyone, everything who longs to be God, who desires to be God. God is separate because his holiness is different. And so there's a paradox that appears as we make our way through the opening stages of the Bible. The sovereign king who shines in his holy perfection, he desires a relationship with a humanity stained in sin and rebellion. The great question that stands in big letters over the Old Testament is how can it be that a holy God can live with unholy people? How can he express his relational love without compromising his holy perfection? He can't just sweep sin under the carpet, but he can't just leave his people alone. There's a tension. How can that be resolved? And we see early on, the answer is a covenant. See, God and humanity are going to enter into an agreement that is legal, that is relational, that is familial, that is eternal. 
and it be centered on the nation of Israel. See, having shown them who he is, having revealed the heart of who he is through uh, the time in Egypt, through the rescue from Egypt, the Lord speaks to the nation's leader, Moses, about how this covenant will work. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Do you see the genius of this? How does the holy sovereign Lord live with his unholy people? He makes them like him. He makes them like him. Israel is to be a kingdom, exercising and demonstrating sovereign rule. They are to be holy, acceptable in the sight of the Lord in the way that they live. And as the treasured possession of the Lord, as the treasured possession of the covenant-keeping God, they will remain in his love. His arms of love will be around them, and they will belong to him. And with all of these blessings that are to bless the rest of the world, they're to be priests, taking the truth of who God is to the nations, showing the beauty of living with the Holy Lord as their sovereign. You want to know what God is like? You see how Israel live and you see just how glorious this God is. So just as the Lord is consistent and loving and relational, so Israel are to be. Just as the Lord is sovereign, exercising perfect rule, so Israel are to lead with righteousness and justice. And just as the Lord is holy, so Israel are to be separate, that to be distinct from the nations, living in a way which puts on show just what God is like. The distinctive difference of living as the Lord's people. That was the hope. That was what was the purpose of this covenant. But there's a problem. And the problem is there in verse five. If you obey if you obey you see passover and the exodus have shown what the lord is like and we can see from that that he will keep his side of the bargain the covenant keeping god there's no need to worry about him he will hold his end up there's no problem there but what about the people what about the people and as the Lord expands on the covenant, as he goes through and he explains what it means to live as his people, we come to Deuteronomy chapter 28, where he outlines the blessings that will come that follow obedience and the curses that will come upon the people that would follow disobedience. You live for me, and this is what life will be like. You don't live for me, and this is what life will be like. Now, we're going to see later how that relates to Amos chapter four, but the big idea is this. The evidence of covenant belonging and acceptance was obedience and holiness. The evidence of covenant belonging was obedience and holiness. And as we move between Moses in about 1500 BC and Amos in around 750 BC and us in exactly 2021, this is the idea that we need buzzing around our head, that the evidence of covenant belonging and acceptance is obedience and holiness. 
And while the new covenant has fundamental differences from the old, the evidence is still the same. As those on this side of the cross, we look back to Calvary, not to Egypt, and we see the dying Savior whose blood sealed the new covenant. And what's the evidence that we belong to that covenant? It's obedience and holiness. As we get into this passage, as we look at Amos chapter 4, we will hear the holy, sovereign Lord roar through Amos. And we need to hear that roar. We need to hear it. As he condemns those who ignore him, as he shakes the complacency out of those who are compromised, we need to hear. And we need to return to him in repentance and faith. So let's train our ears to detect that roar, to listen to what the Lord is saying as he roars against self-satisfaction, against religious hypocrisy, and against stubborn unrepentance. So the Lord roars against self-satisfaction. So you've seen so far that Amos begins his prophecy back in chapter one and the beginning of chapter two with a roar of judgment on the nation surrounding Israel. Do you remember that picture from the video of like a target that goes round and round and gets closer and closer and closer until the Lord roars against Judah, Israel's closest neighbors. And all of these nations are hearing how the Lord is going to judge them. And just when it seems that all is fine for Israel, just when it seems like they've got off lightly, with everything that they've done, the starkest words come to them. They will not escape judgment. The Lord has seen. He has seen their injustice. He has seen their rebellion. He has seen their idolatry. And though he has been patient, though he has shown mercy, the time is coming when he will send a power who will overwhelm them and they will be no more. And as chapter three begins, Amos launches into some prophetic speeches, each beginning with a call to hear what is being said. You remember this from chapter three and verse one. Hear this word, people of Israel, the word the Lord has spoken against you. And Amos uses a number of pictures to show that Israel's sin is at the heart of his pronounces of judgment. Just as a lion doesn't roar when there's no prey, so the Lord wouldn't be roaring if it wasn't for Israel's sin. This is the reason for the judgment. The next oracle is a short one in verse 13 to 15. We see again in verse 13, hear this and testify against the descendants of Jacob. The main thing, we have to hear what the Lord is saying. And once again, Israel is condemned for her sin and the Lord promises to pull down everything that she puts her trust in. You trust in anything apart from me, I'm going to destroy it. I'm going to destroy it. And as we begin chapter four, the familiar words kick us off. Look at verse one. Hear this words. Israel, are you listening? Are you listening as the Lord roars? Headley Park Church, are you listening? Are you listening as the Lord speaks? And having revealed the extent of Israel's sin and giving a glimpse of the consequences in chapter three, Amos outlines exactly what it is that the Lord is calling him to judge. And Paul pointed out, his speech begins in a comic way, but there's nothing funny about what follows. Verse one, hear this word, you cows of Bashan on Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. 
See, Bashan was a particularly fertile land. The slopes of Bashan were full of fantastic places to graze your cattle. And the cattle that grazed there were well-fed. They had more than enough to eat. They were renowned. They were famous for being well-fed animals. If you could get your animals to look as good as the cows on the hills of Bashan, you were doing a really good job. They were never in want. They never needed to work for their food. It was just there. And on Mount Samaria, the heart of Israel, the Lord applies it to the women of the land. Their desire for luxury and to be served has reached such a level that they're described as those who oppress the poor and crush the needy to maintain their lifestyle, to maintain that self-centeredness that they have come to love. Their lavish lifestyle was at the expense of others. They stood on others to put themselves forward. And just as the cows of Bashan live for their stomachs, that's what a cow does. So these women were all about self-satisfaction, living for the here and now. But for the Holy Lord, this cannot continue. Verse two, the sovereign Lord has sworn by his holiness. The time will surely come when you'll be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. You will each go straight out through the breaches in the wall and you will be cast out towards Harmon, declares the Lord. Amos says to these, these self-satisfied women that as you've lived as animals, thinking only of what you can get and living for yourself, so the Lord will treat you like animals. From well-fed cows to helplessly caught fish who are unable to do anything to stop themselves. So they will be brought down in judgment for their sin, for their injustice, for their lack of love. They'll be led away through a shattered stronghold, a breach in the city wall that they assumed would always be there to protect them. That would always help them to maintain their lifestyle. It will be shattered and they'll be cast out away from the land away from the blessing of the Lord, away from the Lord himself. So the Lord looks at his people and he asks, is your life about me and my priorities or about you and your priorities? How would you answer that? How would you answer that question? See, if our lives are busy characterized by obedience and holiness, then we have to be those who build our lives around him and not around ourselves. The natural drag of our hearts is to self-satisfaction. If you do nothing, that's where you will end up. You have to actively work against that drag towards self-satisfaction. And the clear sign of covenant belonging is a desire to root that out, a desire to put that to death, to lay it at the cross and to realign ourselves with Christ. To say this is the heart of who I am without Christ and every day I'm going to put it at the cross. That's the reason that Christ died. Because the natural flow of my heart is to self-satisfaction, is to make sure Simon is on the throne, is to make sure that I am well-fed, is to make sure that I have everything that I need. I wonder, do you reflect on your actions, on your words, on your thoughts? Do you hold them up to the blazing holiness of who our God is? And think through whether you are serving him or whether you are serving yourself. Here's a helpful way of assessing where you are is to answer this question, how do I unwind? Just think, how do you, how do you unwind? What do I need to de-stress? What do you do? Maybe after work, 
Maybe when family life is intense. Maybe when you've been on your own for a while. Maybe when you've been in a crowd of people for a while. How do you unwind? At those times when the world tells you that you need some me time. When the world says you need to let off steam. When you need to focus on activities or substances that take away what real life is like. How do you respond? How do you act in that moment? In a way that shows we're serving the Lord? Or in a way that shows that we're serving ourselves? Because if we continue to live for self-satisfaction with ourselves upon the throne of our hearts, we will hear the lion's roar. And with a little pause for breath, Amos moves from condemning self-satisfaction to religious hypocrisy. He launches into what looks like a psalm. With a few modified words, this could be Psalm 151. But it's clearly intended to mock the people it is aimed at. Verse 4, go to Bethel and sin. Go to Gilgal and sin yet more. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three years. Burn leavened bread as a thank offering and brag about your freewill offerings. Boast about them, you Israelites, for this is what you love to do, declares the sovereign Lord. See, Bethel and Gilgal were centers of religious activity for Israel. But the Lord reveals what is actually going on there. It's sin and yet more sin. Even the life of Israel that seems the most sacred and the most holy is just another way for sin to increase. As Amos roars about sacrifices, about tithes and offerings, he's exposing the self-centered attitude to their worship. He's exposing the thinking that says, if I bring a sacrifice once a week to see God's blessing, imagine how much I'll squeeze out of him if I bring one every day. If I turn the tap on once a week, I turn the tap on once a day, I'll get even more blessing. It's fantastic. I'll be rich. I'll be well fed. Even the cows of Bashan will be jealous of me. If the ritual works, then doing it more will make it work even more. And Amos's response? Crank up the self-serving ritual and then get out and boast about it and brag about it. And then the most damning words, the most damning words at the end. For this is what you love to do. See, the sovereign Lord has exposed the religious life for what it is. Ritualistic, self-serving hypocrisy from an arrogant people who have even made worship of the living God about them. Can you imagine that? Worship of the living God is about them. Why are you here this evening? Why are you here? Podcasters, if you're listening to this later in the week, why? Why are you listening? What is there at the heart of your Christian activity? What's there when you strip everything else away? What is there right at the center of it all? Because the danger is that we treat our corporate worship like an evening at club. You see, club, our youth group for a uh, youth club for primary school aged children, it meets here every Friday night for primary school aged children. And the centerpiece of the evening is where one of us opens up God's words. And as Neil pointed out a couple of years ago, for the only time in the week for many of them, we get to connect these youngsters with the reality of who God is. 
to show them who Jesus is, to take them from literally nowhere and show them who Jesus is. What a privilege, what a delight that is to be able to do that week by week. The free time before the talk is a great way of getting to know the kids, of building relationship, of trying to understand what makes them tick and get them to know even better. The time after the talk is a really good way of asking questions, of letting them ask questions, of just digging a bit deeper, of working out how you can pray for that child during the week. And over the months, you can see the Lord at work amongst the children. What's club like from the children's point of view? They play lots of games. They have to sit still for a few minutes where someone says something that's occasionally interesting. Eat some sweets, play some more games, and then go home. Not to think about the Bible again until next Friday. And my great fear is that some of us treat corporate worship in exactly the same way. You turn up and you play at being a Christian. You sing some good songs. You hang out with friends, you sit still when someone says something that is sometimes interesting, and then you leave, ready to live your life your way until next Sunday when you deign to give Christ another hour of your time. Through Amos, the Lord wants to look you in the eye and say, are you playing games at church? Are you playing games with corporate worship? Do you think that if you give a little bit more, if you come to one extra thing, if you help with one more ministry, then you'll be in better standing before the Lord. Be you'll have something to brag and to boast about, sometimes to others, but mainly to yourself. Yeah, I'm fine. I've seen what someone else does. I do more than them. I reckon I give more than them. I reckon I'm more involved in the church than they are over there. Is gathering with the Lord's people about what you get out of it about how your needs, your preferences, and your desires are met. Go to Headley Park Church and sin. Go to church and sin yet more. How is it possible that we can make worship of the living God about ourselves? And yet we do. Is your worship about you or is it about the Lord? Are you playing games at church? Because if you are, you're on very shaky ground. Very shaky ground. Time for a break, Amos? Not a chance. He's straight in with another structured section focusing on the stubbornness of Israel and their persistent refusal to repent, to turn from their sinful ways. He calls them and says, come back to me, and they ignore him. Come back to me, and they stubbornly say no. Come back to me, and they just display their hard hearts to the Lord who has saved them. So each section from verse 6 to verse 11, it outlines some hardship the Lord has brought upon the people, but then ends with the same words, yet you have not returned to me, declares the sovereign Lord, yet you have not returned to me, declares the sovereign Lord, yet you have not returned to me, declares the sovereign Lord. What's the point of this section? That Israel has not returned to the God who is calling them, the God who has given them time, the God who has warned them the God who has spoken many times, the God who has roared in these difficult times, come back to me. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Every one of these afflictions, every one of these sections has its roots in Deuteronomy 28. 
the chapter of blessings and curses within the covenant relationship. If you want, you can go through. We haven't got time to go through all of them. But example, look at this. So you look at verses um, six to eight. I gave you empty stomachs in every city and lack of bread in every town. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. I also withheld rain from you when the harvest was still three months away. I sent rain on one town, but withheld it from another. One field had rain, another had none and dried up. People staggered from town to town for water, but did not get enough to drink. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. What does it say in Deuteronomy 28? Because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. What is Deuteronomy 28? It is prophecy. It's saying, centuries from now, your descendants will turn from me and this is what will happen. And everything that happened in this chapter, you can trace back in Deuteronomy 28. See, remember that the evidence of covenant belonging and acceptance was obedience and holiness. So what we're seeing here is an undoing of the covenant, a severing of the relationship between God and humanity because of Israel's sin. The very core of the covenant is being unpicked and the relationship is breaking up. A flippant view of holiness that led to a trivializing of sin has brought only judgment from the Lord. Look at how every section begins, I. Verse seven, uh, verse six, I gave you empty stomachs. Verse seven, I also withheld rain. Verse nine, many times I struck your gardens. Verse 10, I sent plagues. 11, I threw some of you away. I overthrew some of you. I, 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 this is the Lord's doing. He has brought this suffering. He has brought this torment. He is working to bring the people back. There's no doubt that this is from the Lord. The relationship is being undone. But along with that, it's important to see how the Lord links Israel with the nations, reversing the whole purpose of the covenant. Remember, they were to be a light to the nations. They were to put God's holiness on view, his glory for all to see. Yet look in verse 10. The Lord says he treated Israel like Egypt implying that they were of the same nature as the hard-hearted nation who had kept the Lord's people as slaves, rejoicing in their own power and might. We are the mightiest nation on earth. We will stand for all time. In verse 11, he compares them to Sodom and Gomorrah, cities the Old Testament always goes back to as pictures of sin and depravity, just as they were beyond hope and fit only for judgment. So Israel has reached the point of no return and a fit only for exile. What was the calling of Israel? Think back to Exodus 19, to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation, to be a light to the nations, drawing people from all backgrounds to their distinctive way of living, with their holiness on view, and ultimately to their gods. Come and see what Israel is like, and understand the God behind them, who they live for. You want to know what the Lord is like? You look at Israel. And at this moment, Israel is failing miserably. Instead of living lives of distinctive holiness, different, separate from the nations, they look just like them. They look just like everybody around them. Instead of drawing godless people to the Lord, they've been dragged away by the allure of sin and idolatry. They've seen the gods of the nations and have run to them. 
So instead of the nations coming to them, they've just gone and prostituted themselves with those from other nations. And their stubborn unrepentance has locked them into this track that led only to judgment. I did this, says the Lord, yet you did not listen. You've not returned to me, declares the Lord. You know, nothing, absolutely nothing compromises our witness more than sin. How do you foil the mission of Jesus? We as a church want to be on mission for Jesus. How do you wreck that? Just keep sinning. Just keep sinning. To be people who proclaim the lavish riches of God in Christ and then live as if we don't care what he says. We don't care how we are to live poison to our witness absolute poison and because there is grace because our god brings good from evil sin followed by genuine heartfelt repentance it puts the attention back on him it shows the cross it shows how even broken people like us can be forgiven and the glory of god can shine out of these broken jars of clay praise god but a deep cycle of unrepentant sin drags us back into the mire of this world. We just get covered in the grime and the pollution of the sin away from the light of Christ. So we bring not glory to God, but shame. That's what your God looks like. That's what living for your God looks like. I don't think much of him. I don't think much of him. You see, either we behave just as the world does, and so there's no difference between us and the world. Or we act in a way which shocks the world when they compare it to what we say. And both are deadly to the mission. So what sinful patterns are you unrepentedly stuck in? The ones that 99% of the time, you're so hard-hearted that you don't even class them as sin. You've got so good at justifying yourself. You've got so good at saying, that's fine. That you don't even class it as sin anymore. Have you got a stunted view of holiness that is compromising your witness? Because when people are watching, they see that you're not the person that you say that you are. Because again, this is very dangerous ground. See, the covenant at Sinai as the Lord spoke to Moses, it was a conditional covenant, if you keep my covenant. And Israel here on the brink of losing their standing before God, losing that relationship because of their sin. Now, as we're seeing in Ephesians, the new covenant is unconditional. Our relationship past, present, and future is all taken care of by God in Christ. When did I become a Christian? Before the creation of the world. How do I stop becoming a Christian? I don't because it's all of Christ. I was in Christ before the foundation of the world. I'll be in Christ into eternity. It's all of him. The genius of the covenant is that we're made like him. We're made like him. That's what the first three chapters of Ephesians are. This is who you are. You're like Jesus. But here's the point. The evidence of belonging to the covenant is obedience and holiness. That's the evidence and a lack of both, of obedience and holiness, point towards the desperate truth, the desperate truth, that you were never part of the covenant in the first place. 
Look at what Jesus says in Matthew 18 about dealing with a lack of repentance. If your brother and sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen to you, you've won them over. But if they'll not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. We've got a pattern here of stubborn unrepentance. Someone is confronted with their sin by one person, by two people, by a group of people, by the church, and still they are on repentance. Do you notice how the description of the person changes? You see at the beginning how they're described, a brother or a sister. But by the end, they prove themselves not to be that. By the end, you treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. And of course, how did Jesus treat those people? With love. And he pointed them to Christ. But he didn't treat them as a brother or a sister. Though it was assumed they loved Christ. Though it was assumed they were a brother or a sister. By the time you reach the end. By the time this unrepentant sin has continued in their life. All the evidence points to them being a pagan or a tax collector. They haven't been kicked out of the covenant. They were never in it. Of course, sadly, we all still sin. And that'll be true until we see Christ at our death or at his return. Repentance is a daily necessity. All of us need to be repenting every day. So with God's holiness in view, with him filling our vision, are you calling to mind? Are you ruthlessly putting sin to death? By the power of the Spirit? Are you laying everything before Him, saying, Here are my idols, here are the natural pulls of my heart, here are where I'd be without Christ? I'm going to put all of it before you and turn from it. And by the power of the Spirit, the power in me that raised Jesus from the death, I'm going to turn and say, God, please take me each day to you. Are you stubbornly holding on to it? Are you saying, It's okay, I can follow Jesus and hold on to this? I can live for him and keep this, whatever this is. Are you justifying it? Are you dismissing the danger of it, downplaying it, saying it's not that bad? Are you refusing to repent or even acknowledging the need to repent? Have you become content with a stunted holiness that says, I can see the glory of God is up there, but I'm content just being here. In fact, I'm content being here. It's fine. I get into glory by the skin of my teeth. It's fine. doesn't matter. Be careful. Be very careful. For Amos has a message for you. Verse 12. Therefore, this is what I will do to you, Israel. And because I will do this to you, Israel, prepare to meet your God. Prepare to meet your God. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to pause and we're going to meditate on verse 13, just in the quiet. I just want you to read verse 13 and then read it again and read it again and read it again, where the focus is on the Lord himself in his creative and his awesome and his powerful greatness. Are you ready to meet this God? Is your heart where it should be before him?
as you read these words, just think about where you are before him. Be honest with him in the quietness of your heart. Realign yourself with our God and focus upon him. He who forms the mountains, who creates the wind, and who reveals his thoughts to mankind, who turns dawn to darkness and treads on the heights of the earth, the Lord God Almighty is his name. And as we finish, I want you to see the tension that there is in these verses, two things that are held together that don't seem to make sense. The Lord roars in judgment. This is what is going to happen. Prepare to meet your God. You are on shaky ground before me. We get this glorious revelation of who he is in his power, in his vastness, in his might. And what does he call himself? The Lord, the covenant keeper, the one who loves his people, the one who longs to live with his people. And there's a question that hangs a question that hangs there unanswered and unresolved. How can the Lord, the personal, the covenant-keeping God, who desires loving relationship with his people, how can this God also be the judge who roars against sin, against injustice and rebellion? How can God be those two things? How can he be both just and justifier? these words from Romans chapter three. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. It's the answer to the question. The answer to it all is the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, the good news that God took all of that punishment, all of that rebellion, all of that sin and that pollution 
and he placed it upon his son, upon that sacrifice of atonement. You see, that, those words there, are the antidote to self-satisfaction, to religious hypocrisy, to stubborn unrepentance. Where do you appear in there? Verse 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That is you. Don't be under any illusion at all. Don't let the fact that God's common grace has made you into quite a nice person. You fall short of the glory of God in every single way. And so do I. Every way. When we get that, there is no self-satisfaction. There is no self-justification. There is no uh, self-aggrandizement. Because all we bring is sin. And so this is where we need to go daily. Daily to the cross. To understand who we are in Christ. And what it means to live for him. See, for Christians, preparing to meet our God is a joy. Did you get that this morning as Neil spoke of our hope? I can't wait to meet our God. It's glorious joy. So, brothers and sisters, guard your hearts. Keep your eyes on Christ and walk daily in his spirit. Listen to the warnings. And in daily repentance, live out your relationship with your father secured for you by his son who gives his spirit daily to enable you to walk so that you will hear the father's welcome and not the sovereign god's roar let's pray oh father these are difficult words but we thank you. We thank you that they are in the Bible. We thank you that we can have such clear glimpses of your holiness, of your hatred of sin, of your burning desire for your people to be holy. Father, we fall and we're sorry. As we sang before we started, we confess that we are distant from you. And I pray, Lord, that we'll be a people of repentance. A people who hold our dirty lives up to your shining light. And repent of all that gets in the way. All that stops people seeing Jesus. Father, forgive us for our self-satisfaction. Forgive us for our religious hypocrisy. Forgive us for our stubborn unrepentance. And I pray that even this week, that our hearts would be soft before you. That we would see you at work and we would rejoice. That there is still time. There is still time to prepare to meet you. Father, I pray for any here tonight who are stuck. Who feel like the sin has just come over their heads. Like that sheep this morning, they just can't get out of the hole. pray that they would know grace. I pray that they would run to you. And as the prodigal knew only the open wide arms of his father, may the roar of Amos send us to our heavenly father. Father, we praise you for Christ. We thank you that he is the way that a holy God can live with unholy people. And we praise you that he presented 
who's presented as a sacrifice of atonement, turning away your wrath and doing all that was necessary for us to know your smile. Thank you, our great God. Amen.